Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The Prime Minister is determined to move on from coronavirus. He wants to build, build, build. In a speech this week, he set out his vision of a Rooseveltian New Deal. And you wait months for a reference to Franklin Delano Roosevelt and two come along at once. Michael Gove, Minister for the Cabinet Office, referred to the US President in setting out his grand plans for reforming the way government works. He also cited Antonio Gramsci, the noted Marxist thinker, all this from a Conservative government. It did not pass without comment that his speech came barely 24 hours before the announcement that Sir Mark Sedwell was stepping down as Cabinet Secretary. We'll look at whether the changes the government is actually making in Whitehall match what Gove says he intends. And coronavirus hasn't gone away either. In fact, in Leicester, it looks like it's on the way back. But how does Boris Johnson's whack-a-mole local lockdown strategy actually work? That's coming up too. Joining me in our virtual studio today are Kath Haddon, our guru on all things constitutional. Hi, Kath. Big week in Whitehall. Uh, Yes, a very big week. Don't normally lose a cabinet secretary, so yeah. Welcome back to our chief economist, Gemma Tetlow, who's been looking at the Prime Minister's building plans. Hello. A big welcome to Robert Shrimsley, Chief Political Commentator at the FT. It's great to have you here. I'm Roman. Good to be here. Let's start with Boris Johnson's big speech. The Prime Minister went to Dudley in the West Midlands, where he put on a hard hat, high-vis jacket, got in the cab of a big yellow digger to set out the government's plans for a huge amount of building to help with economic recovery. Gemma, tell us what the Prime Minister's plan actually is. The Prime Minister referred to this as a new deal, as you say, invoking uh, Franklin Delaney Roosevelt. But what was announced yesterday or earlier this week was really much smaller than anything Roosevelt did back in the 1930s. Roosevelt's New Deal was something like 40% of US GDP at the time, a huge injection of public spending that got the US, helped get the US economy out of the Great Depression. Um, what Boris Johnson announced this week was really something like more of a small reprofiling of investment spending some announced new money to try and get projects up and running. Um, I think a bit of a question about how quickly much of that money is going to come online. And some of it was re-announcing projects that the government had already said it wanted to deliver. Um, So a question about how quickly they can get that done. All of it is welcome, um, but a lot of it should probably be really seen as sort of investments in future economic growth, with much of the money probably not hitting quickly. So whilst Boris Johnson talked about the thunderclap of economic damage that we're waiting for, as um, things like the government support for wage subsidies through the coronavirus direct retention scheme, as those things start to come off and we wait for the full economic impact of coronavirus to become apparent, actually what was contained in Boris Johnson's speech earlier this week um, really didn't give a lot of meat to how the government is going to help support jobs. He talked about jobs, but there wasn't much in the way of policies in the speech this week about how the government would support jobs through the recovery stage. So I think in some ways we were left after Boris Johnson's speech waiting for Rishi Sunak to stand up next week and tell us more about what they have in mind. Which we'll come on to, but did Boris Johnson tell us how much money he's talking about? He talked about an extra £5 billion for infrastructure spending, with most of that um, specified in the speech, Um, some more details to come. But some of that money is uh, trying to deliver on pledges that the government has already made. So So it's not new money in the the classic? Not all of it is new money, although it may be trying to do things more quickly than they were otherwise planning to do. And we, we had Andy Holden, the chief economist of the Bank of England, saying this week, actually, maybe the recovery is going to be V shaped, not U or W or L shaped. Um, is that slightly better news? 
Andy Haldane was certainly pointing to a slightly better picture. I think there is still a huge amount of uncertainty among economists about exactly what we're facing. Um, Lots of people are being supported by the government through the coronavirus job retention scheme and the support for the self-employed. We haven't yet seen how many of those jobs are really going to come back. We're starting to see that some of them aren't. We've had Upper Crust this week announcing large-scale job reductions. We've had some of the large manufacturing groups say that they're making people redundant. I think there's still a huge amount of uncertainty about whether a lot of the jobs that existed in February are really going to come back or whether something very substantial is needed to help people retrain and move over into new jobs for a new style economy post coronavirus because this is quite a, potentially quite a retraining if you've got someone losing a job in in a restaurant or as, a, as an airline pilot and, and boris johnson saying come and come and help build the roads in, in the north of england this is this is um this is quite some move Exactly. I guess we have to see the sort of impact of Boris Johnson's announcements this week in two ways. One is just taking them as infrastructure projects and what does that do for future economic growth. But I think, as you say, if we want to view these as the government's contribution towards creating jobs during the recovery phase, then the sort of jobs that are most at risk from social distancing in hospitality, leisure, airline industries, it's not clear that many of those people have the skills at the moment to go and start working in the construction sector. Robert, you were writing this week that the battle of economic ideas is over for the moment and and that there's a consensus. Uh, What is it? then? Well, I mean, one can overdo consensus. But I think (laughs) what I think we can all agree is that there is no significant political party in Britain that would like to recoup the amount of money that is being spent quickly uh, with cuts to public spending or even significant increases in taxation. I think there may be a breach in the consensus a little bit further down the line as the Conservatives at some point feel the need to recoup the extraordinary amounts of money that have been spending. And I think, by the way, when we talk about New Deal, it is w- worth remembering, although one shouldn't get too diverted by the slogans the government wished to throw at us, that there has been an unprecedented amount of fiscal intervention already in the beginnings of this crisis. So it's it's not just the $5 billion that we should be talking about. And as you say, it's an important point. I mean, it, that, that all these references to Roosevelt and so on, it's not just the amount of money that's been spent already, but also, as you just said, the, the um, no intention of, of, of trying to recoup that, at least immediately. But I think this is the absolute key point. You know, for, for as long as interest rates remain as low as they are, even close to it, as long as the British government's debt managing, management office remains as good as it has been in you know, pushing out debt and very long maturities, then there is very good reason for the government to continue down this path. And this is, as we all know, a a have your cake and eat it um, government. And if you can spend profusely and not worry about the consequences for quite a long time, that seems to me the ultimate in cake and eat it. But what I think I really mean is that all sides understand that we are moving into an era of increased state intervention, increased state support for industry and increased government spending to support the economy. Um, increased activity. One always remembers that phrase of Boris Johnson's where he referred to himself as a Brexity Hezer. And sometimes it's these throwaway lines that people mock, which are the absolute giveaways of what people are about. And Boris Johnson is about being a highly interventionist prime minister who will intervene before breakfast, lunch and dinner. And that, I think, is the economic consensus that we have now. We have two main parties in Britain who believe in intervening, who do not believe in sitting back and letting the economy um, take its way with people and who have rejected the sort of, the sort of laissez-faireism of, of, of the Thatcherite consensus. So that's what I think what I was trying to say. So is there still something identifiable as conservatism? Yes. I mean, I suppose one could argue that Mrs. Thatcher was the aberration in conservatism rather than um, interventionist conservatism. She was 
much more of an economic radical. It's always worth remembering that she was considerably less Thatcherite than her disciples. Um, but I, but I, I think that the conservative approach has always been to see the wave that's coming, get on it, and get on it in a way that seems a little bit less radical and a little bit less aggressive um, than, than alternatives. But this is, a, this is not a free market government. That is the key point, um, which is going to be very interesting when you, when you juxtapose what it wants to do within the country against its avowed intentions in terms of international trade and this global Britain mantra that they trot out from time to time, which requires far less intervention and requires setting Britain up as a great place to come and do business. So there is a tension there. I don't think it's a conflict, but there's a tension. And is there anything, all this is predicated on the government continuing to be able to borrow money fairly cheaply. Um, Could anything that's happening uh, internationally spoil the party on that? Uh, well, I mean, again, um, um, Gemma referenced Andy Haldane. Clearly, if we move into an inflationary situation, then the ability to borrow money cheaply goes away, and that becomes another dr- dramatic issue. And that, the moment the borrowing costs start to go up, that changes everything for the way the Treasury has to calculate this. Gemma, other countries, I think you particularly of Germany, France, Canada, have said, look, we're going to use this, this moment, um, we're going to put more money into stuff, uh, we're going to make it a very green recovery. The Prime Minister didn't emphasise that this time, though uh, he said plenty of things about green commitments. Um, is this a missed opportunity or just uh, one thing he didn't have time to tuck into his speech? I, mean, I think there was some mention of green in the speech. Um, and obviously, it's been a big theme that people have been talking about is how can we use this opportunity to build back better, to try and achieve our net zero target as we kind of restructure the economy post-coronavirus. Um, I mean, in some ways, those green interventions, some in some ways they come together quite nicely in the sense that some of the green investments that we need to make can actually be done quite quickly. So they meet both the need for fiscal stimulus to get money out the door quickly. Um, Some of them are quite labour intensive, so they do create jobs. Um, I'm thinking about sort of retrofitting houses. You could, for example, give people subsidies to retrofit their houses, replace their boilers. So in some ways, some of these green interventions uh, dovetail quite nicely with what you want in terms of a quick fiscal stimulus. We didn't hear some of those details from Boris Johnson yesterday, maybe that's the sort of thing that Rishi Sunak will come to talk about, about next week. I think the major thing that was sort of missing from Boris Johnson's speech this week was really what's the government's approach to fiscal stimulus. You referred to some of those other countries like Germany and France. In those countries, they've been much more explicit already about quite a big package of fiscal stimulus that is measures precisely designed to try and boost demand in the economy, rather than much of what Boris Johnson was talking about this week, which was more investments in infrastructure, trying to boost the supply side for the long term. So I think maybe next week we'll see more of that talk about the demand stimulus. And maybe there is scope there for some of these sort of investments that are both green and get the money out the door quickly. Kath, what do you reckon about all these historical references? Does that that work for the government? Well, I mean, it probably helps focus minds on it a little bit. Um, I mean, it certainly put the backs up of the historians who are at pains to point out all of the um, discrepancies there. And I was talking to some Americans this week who were bemused, to say the least, about the references. But I mean, Robert's right. The government's got to somehow pitch this. This is a massive scale of government intervention thus far on coronavirus. And also, it's a completely different approach to the we saw in 2010 in terms of the recovery um, from the 2008 financial crash. So they've got to look elsewhere of um, where they're going to see parallels. We know that this government, uh, this prime minister, 
likes big figures from history, likes making historical comparisons. I mean, the other thing we know about this government is they like three word slogans. And so build, build, build has come up. And that obviously harkens back to Blair's education, education, education. So I don't think they'll be that bothered about whether or not it really does compare to the scale of intervention in the 1930s. They're just looking for a slogan, looking for somewhere to pitch it. And I suspect for most of the public, they'll they'll hear a lot of that. The, the big question is whether or not this actually then will make a difference to people's lives in the years to come, where Gemma's pointed out all the, the potential flaws to come. Next up, we've got uh, Rishi Sunak next week, um, the, the, the Chancellor, um, as we've just been discussing, giving it, giving a big speech. Gemma, what's he going to be trying to do? What do we know about it? So we, d- we don't know a huge amount about it. I think partly this will be laying out a bit more of how the government sees the economic outlook, I think. But I think given the gaps that were in Boris Johnson's speech this week, coupled with the statements about being worried about people's jobs and the thunderclap of economic damage, it the gap seems to be what is the government's approach in terms of economic policy to cushioning that thunderclap, I don't know, earmuffs or something, um, <laughs> however we extend the metaphor. Um, what are they going to do over the next few months to get demand going in the economy again as the lockdown eases and also help those people who are likely to face job losses over the next few months as businesses don't come back and as the coronavirus job retention scheme winds down. So I would expect to see more in the way of policies around fiscal stimulus, aggregate demand stimulus, uh, job support and retraining programmes, which I think is where the, the gap is at the moment. Not going back to Robert's point, not not large uh, tax increases, or not at this point. At this point, um, I think Robert is right. There's there's quite an interesting consensus amongst economists about the need for big government economic intervention and actually not worrying about the deficit in the short term. And therefore, I wouldn't expect to see Rishi Sunak next week saying we need to be aiming to get the deficit down quickly and therefore we need a plan for uh, increasing taxes and cutting spending very quickly. Actually, I think there's quite a number of voices among mainstream economists saying one thing we learned from the financial crisis was perhaps that there was a downside to trying to do fiscal contraction too quickly. Um, At the moment, if what we may still be facing the sort of V-shaped recovery path that Andy Haldane talked about, if that's the case, then actually you don't want to increase taxes and cut spending substantially quickly, which might harm future economic growth and therefore make it harder for the government to actually become fiscally sustainable in future. So I would be surprised if we see uh, the government coming out next week and saying this is our target for getting the deficit down over the next few years and here are the tax increases that are going to deliver that. Okay, I won't hold you to it. Robert, one final thought on this section. Uh, We were talking about a new deal, but uh, what about Brexit? We may be just a few months away from no deal, no trade deal with the EU. Um, do you think the government's going to budge on this? They've been absolutely adamant that uh, no extension, regardless of what the economic hit might be. Well, I think we've passed the extension date officially. Um, I mean, I do believe they're serious about this. I, I mean, I've always believed in the end that we're going to face a situation rather similar to the one we faced last year, in which the government hangs tough, hangs tough, absolutely stands by the position it had, then fundamentally agrees to the position that the European Union had and pretends it was its own position. So, I I mean, I think I'm not one of those who thinks we are going to end up in a no-deal situation. It's clearly possible. My instinct is against it because in the end, the damage it will do is too great and the government will think the political hit is not worth it. Although they think 
although I know people in government who say, well, you know, we can disguise any damage in the greater coronavirus damage, I think it would speak to the issue of competence, of ability. It would further erode some people's trust in the government, and it would hit a number of the people they're trying not to hurt, who, they, who, who are part of their new constituency. I think it's entirely possible we have some kind of transitory deal which agrees a certain amount and then agrees to roll some aspects over. But I'm afraid I think that the um, the future history of, of, of Britain is going to be that we're going to spend the next 10 to 15 years renegotiating our trade arrangements uh, with the European Union as one government or on, after another comes in to try um, and improve them. And I think that, that that's the key. Issue. One point I just go back to on, on the issue of the New Deal rhetoric. I think the one thing that's really, really important about it, and as I said, it's all about signalling rather than literalism, is that this government is attempting to forge a new political coalition, which has worked for one election, but which it wants to hold on to, in which it pulls ordinary working people, people not very substantial means, and this is something that Theresa May started, of course, and keeps them in the conservative side um, of, of the balance sheet. And part of that is consistently saying to them, we are on your side. And I think the fundamentals of politics is drawing a dividing line far enough over into the opposition's territory that the majority of people think that you are on their side. And a, a vast amount of this, and when you talk to people in this government, one of the things they constantly reference is the financial crisis and the bailout that helped businesses, not people. And I think that is very much an underlying ethos for this government, politically and strategically, is we have got to show that we are relentlessly on the side of ordinary people who have backed us. And that is the new mm. alliance we are building. We are building ordinary people against cultural elites, against you know the people who liked globalization, who let you down, who didn't think of you. And so the New Deal rhetoric not only is a, is a way of focusing on that, but it's also a way of keeping their, their own mindset in, 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 in the right place and saying to everybody, these are our voters now. These are the people we have to focus on. And I think you should expect that absolutely in what Rishi Sunak says next week. Well, thanks very much for, uh, for that. And just on that technical point about, about the extension and when the government can ask it, uh, the, the, uh, the IFG has put out work and uh, sent it to the government on uh, three or four other ways it could uh, ask for extensions, uh, having, having passed the deadline, the easiest uh, way to do it this month. Well, I stand technically corrected, but I'll stick with my prediction nonetheless. I know. <laughs> thanks very much indeed for that. Let's move on to our second subject, the New Deal, if you like, uh, for the civil service that senior figures in the government seem to be thinking about. And on Monday's emergency podcast, we discussed Michael Gove's vision for reforming how government works, which he set out in the speech on the weekend. And uh, the announcement at almost the same time that Sir Mark Sedwell would leave his post as cabinet secretary. Uh, Robert, you, you read Gove's speech. What did you think? I thought there was a justification for what they'd already decided to do. It did a job. Um, I thought, again, it was quite clever in the sense of tying their administrative ambitions to their moral mission and saying, and that's, again, where Roosevelt came in, saying, you know, we mustn't be afraid of doing what seemed like radical and remarkable things, which Roosevelt also did, of course, in shaping up the structures of the federal government completely. Um, and I thought from that point of view, it, it worked. I think that we all know that there are enormous problems within the way the civil service works. Nobody thinks the civil service is perfect. I think the problem is the creation of a sort of dualism in this conversation, which is which says that we can't do what we want because of the civil service. We need to reform the civil service to deliver the things that we want to do. And anything that we fail to do is not our fault. It's the fault of the civil service structures. And, and you can see this most blatantly in the attempt to make Public Health England the full guy for everything that's gone wrong 
in, in the handling the pandemic. And it makes the point really well. You're not going to hold up Public Health England as one of the stars of the coronavirus. No, but I was about to, the point I was precisely about to make is that we all know that Public Health England got a lot of things wrong. But we also know that the government and the prime minister and the cabinet got a lot of things wrong. And the two run hand in hand. It's not an either or. But if you look at the government's media outriders, they, they are all busy explaining how the civil service needs to be changed. And the pandemic has demonstrated this and it's demonstrated it up to a point. But on the other, and I think we, we've seen a number of governments wrestle with the notion of a much stronger centre, a proper delivery unit. These are not phenomenally new concepts. And I think we're seeing it again. And they've got a point. The problem is if we allow them to make the civil service the alibi for everything that goes wrong over the next five years, that will be a problem. You know, Kath, I mean, you, you and I were discussing this a lot ahead of a piece I was um, mm. writing on Go Speech um, about, you know, where you put the responsibility between the civil service and ministers. And you've been arguing about it very uh, passionately. Look, don't leave ministers out of the picture. They're responsible too, uh, maybe mainly responsible. Yeah, and there were quite a few inconsistencies in Go's speech on that front. I mean, he did mention things like, you know, the dangers of um, governments uh, governing by press release, putting out announcements before they were able to do that. But he didn't quite connect that to the number of times that this government has done that, particularly over coronavirus. We saw that over trying to get schools back. We saw that over the testing target. We've seen that over the track and trace app. Um so, yeah, a little bit more emphasis on ministers and their role in this, not just in terms of creating policies, but also in terms of the uh, sort of behaviours and incentives they send across the civil service. Um, many of the reforms that Michael Gove is talking about are things that um, the IFG and many others have been talking about for years. These are not new ideas. It's things that the civil service have been struggling with for years. So th th these are things like you know, just professional skills, stopping the turnover of people in jobs too much. Um, yeah, and moving out of London and yeah, trying to yeah. get more diversity in you know geography as well. Yeah, so, so all areas that we've been looking at. I mean, the interest interesting thing about this is that yet again you've got a, quite a lot of rhetoric uh, what we need to see now are the plans for actually doing it because where politicians usually lose interest is when um, civil service reform plans go from being an intellectual exercise into being a hard slog in terms of changing pay and progression in terms of um, changing behaviors at the top of the organization and it all takes a while but the other thing is, I mean, you know, Robert's sort of talked about it a bit there. None of these reforms to the civil service are going to make up for bad policy. And that also involves politicians. And, you know, that has the policy work at the top of the organisation has to be listening to experts. It has to be getting in diversity of opinions. There is a real danger in any government that you end up with uh, getting more and more people around you who agree with your perspective, and that closes down your chance to think through, is this actually the right thing to do? Is it going to go you know, wrong at some point? Robert? I was just going to say, and the other point that completely ties that is that we've seen historically that the, um, the governments that have the most effect in driving radical reformation are the ones with very strong cabinet ministers. You cannot do this all from the centre. And if you have a, 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 a largely neutered cabinet, and a number of people who serve as ciphers taking orders from Downing Street, you've got to take direction, of course, then that's problematic. The, the ministers who have the most impact, and Michael Gove should know this because he had enormous impact at the Department for Education, are those with the strength 
to force through reforms and with a very, very clear strategic vision of what they're trying to do. Okay, but I mean, Gove doesn't have a department, but but actually it perhaps has more time for this. The two people who seem really, really to care about this stuff at the moment are Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings, yes, uh, which but, is but not a bad we, start for, the, for this agenda. It, it's great, but as we know, there is just a limit to what you can do from the centre. You do need the departments to be well run. You need strong secretaries of state at the top who can take an agenda and run with it and have a relatively clear vision of what they want to do. And that is for good or ill, by the way. I mean, you, you, you can see, for example, in the health reforms of Andrew Lansley, the impact of a minister who really knew what he wanted to do, um, not necessarily something we'll look back on with, with enormous pleasure. But the point is, you cannot understate the power of a Secretary of State with an agenda, and this government, I think, does. Yeah, just to give one really good example of that. I mean, we always talk about Tony Blair, the early 2000s, they created the delivery unit. It was a great focus on, um, you know, reform. It made a big difference. It's been copied around the world. But then in the aftermath of that, by 2005, we had the Home Office described as not fit for purpose. And that led to, you know, the loss of a Home Secretary. It led to the loss of a permanent secretary at the Home Office. And it needed strong Home Secretaries to come in and then reform the department. So there is a limit to what you can do from the centre. Yeah, and, and Gemma, you've been following the Treasury closely, and the Treasury's, you know, perhaps come out the best of any Whitehall department uh, in the coronavirus response. And yet that and it didn't really get uh, targeted very much in Gove's speech as needing reform. Um, and yet it's hard to get much further with the kind of things that Gove's talking about, like more sense of performance and measuring performance of departments without the Treasury being involved, isn't it? I think that's right. I was just sort of reflecting on that as you were all talking, that I think there is a widespread feeling that actually the Treasury response and the economic policy response to the coronavirus has been pretty effective. And I think that would, was only possible as a collaboration between ministers' vision, but also an awful lot of work by civil servants to figure out both how you dev- devise policies and particularly in response to coronavirus, what was possible to implement quickly enough. So it was not only the Treasury, but also HM Revenue and Customs, thinking about how do you actually get money out the door in wage subsidies and that sort of thing. And I think they're probably, I and mean, the Treasury comes under a lot of Uh, criticism for the sort of treasury orthodoxy. But a a part of that is a sort of confidence within the treasury in their analysis, their understanding of economic impacts and sort of confident advice to ministers about what is possible. Um, And perhaps perhaps that's Gove's vision for other departments. But um, in a sense, none of those things would have been possible without having had civil servants with sufficient knowledge, understanding, ability to provide that advice to ministers that allowed them to act quickly. Um, To your point about the Treasury's role in thinking about uh, value for money and valuation and things going forward, I think that is right. Um, I suppose what we have looked at in previous Institute for Government work is how you get the right balance between the Treasury providing that oversight and being the sort of the one government department that really cares about balancing the books um, with having also the right expertise and motivations within departments to actually, they have much more knowledge about the the policies they're delivering, the services they're delivering. So that's where you also need that kind of understanding of the sort of more nitty gritty of what's going on to think about actually what's the most effective way that we can achieve delivering this policy or delivering the the government's bigger ambition. All right, so pulling pulling this together, let's look at the two big reports to to what uh, Gove was saying. Uh, One, that he's talking big 
Um, but actually, uh, what, what the government is doing is a slew of quite small uh, staffing changes and then big, uh, a big departmental merger. Uh, and the second one, that it, this actually amounts to a kind of politicization of jobs that were formerly done by impartial uh, civil servants, uh, particularly the appointment of, of David Frost, the Brexit negotiator, as national security advisor. What, what should we make of these two challenges to go I think on the first one, in terms of rhetoric and reality, we still have to see it. I mean, um, you know, when we see the plans, um, it's going to be the question is going to be both how ambitious they are and do they match the rhetoric. Again, I think it's one of those things that um, for the kind of people that the government is targeting, as Robert says, um, messaging to uh, the wider world that the government is trying to reform and so forth, they won't actually mind whether or not the the reality meets the rhetoric. Um, the other question is obviously on on terms of what the plans are and how they intend to achieve it, because that's a, a big issue in, in civil service reform. But to go to your second point about politicisation, I mean, actually, there have been a few of the government's um, appointments on, on senior civil servants where it has been fairly traditional. Uh, the next cabinet secretary will be a former or current permanent secretary, so not a huge change there in the model. Um, the David Frost appointments, he has a diplomatic background. The key issue is that he doesn't have a security background. Um, and also the nature of his appointment means that he cannot instruct civil servants in the same way. So it won't be so much of an executive role um, as it was originally conceived. We'll have to see how that turns out. So it's kind of a load of mixed messages from the government about exactly how much they um, are pushing against the sort of civil service model of impartiality. Um, and I, I, you know, at the moment, they seem to be sort of generally happy with the the idea that you have a continuing civil service who is impartial, permanent, and so forth. I mean, it was Francis Maud back in the t uh, 2012 onwards who was trying to push at the idea that you might have politically appointed permanent secretaries, which is uh, something they do in some other countries, Australia in particular, but we don't do here. But there's been no signs of that from this government thus far. Yeah, Robert, what do you reckon? I mean, you, you might argue that any government has the right to put in, not in the best people that it, it, it thinks... Uh, for the job, but while respecting an impartial civil service, also you know put in people who are, you know, get in some sense what it's uh, trying to do. Or do you see it as um, putting in really like-minded fellow travellers? Well, I mean, I think we, it's a slight suck it and see situation, as you say. Almost all governments, and and it is it is important to remember this this government feels almost like it was in opposition. It doesn't feel like they were in power for the last ten years. So they've arrived with an opposition mindset and a quite traditional opposition mistrust of lots of the civil service. And in my experience, the longer governments last, the better that relationship becomes. And they tend to find people they like and people they can work with and trust more. Um, I think in general, it's not unusual to want to have people, and David Frost is a very good example of this, who the prime minister trusts and listens to. And therefore, there can be benefits to that as well. The issue comes in whether these people are prepared to tell those in power unpleasant truths and whether they are prepared to own or whether they are only prepared to say what they know the prime minister wants to hear if these are trusted individuals who are prepared to challenge orthodoxy but also challenge their bosses then i think it can work quite well if it is merely a vehicle for a different form of groupthink then everything that michael gove has said amounts to nothing because you are simply substituting one set of um establishment thinking for another at the moment i think we have to say 
the jury's out. They clearly want to reform the way it functions. I personally am sceptical of this notion they, they need to appoint, for example, a Brexiter as cabinet secretary. And I'm not particularly... They have, they have actually rushed out to deny that after the reports of them doing just that. Yes. In a newspaper say, in, that in, is not in, your own. In my years of, of writing about politics, I've moved. I, I remember when I started, I would take a denial from Downing Street as a reason not to write something. And nowadays, I merely feel the need to record it at the bottom of the story. We will call so, that experience you know, certainly not cynicism. So I think that's a very, very long winded way of saying I think you're going to have to just see all governments want to get the right people around them. And the right people tend to be somebody who isn't telling them that everything they think is nonsense. And then we're just going to have to see how much further they push it. Okay, well, all candidates for uh, Cabinet Secretary have clearly been given the, uh, the briefing notes for their interviews. We'll wait to see on that. Let's go to our final subject, local lockdown in Leicester, not to beat you up with alliteration. The Prime Minister's speech painted a picture of a brave new world after coronavirus, but there's one hitch, the virus has not gone away. And this week, that was most apparent in Leicester, with a sharp spike seeing the city account for 10% of all cases in the UK. Leicester's now been placed in a tight lockdown, just as the rest of the country is getting ready for a swathe of uh, restrictions to lift on July the 4th. This is Boris Johnson's whack-a-mole strategy in action, but it isn't quite as easy as it sounds or as much fun. Raphael Hogarth, IFG associate, joins us now to explain why. Raph, you wrote a great piece for us this week. You're not impressed. I think that the government's decision-making on this local lockdown has been a little bit of a mess. I mean, I think uh, local lockdowns are always going to be uh, harder and harder to sell than a national one. Uh, you've got to calibrate the, the restrictions correctly. And you've also got to confront the fact that it's basically going to feel more unfair for people if they can't open their business or uh, meet their families if people down the road can. Um, and I, I think the government didn't deal with all of that particularly well for a couple of reasons. Uh, I mean, for one, there was just so much confusion about who was going to be responsible for bringing in these restrictions. Was it going to be ministers in central government? Was it going to be those in the local authority uh, and what the restrictions were going to be? There was also not very much clarity from the government about the criteria that it was applying in order to bring in the restrictions. So you know, when, when the government was looking at national lockdown and particularly when it was looking at coming out of national lockdown, it had a series of tests that it set itself uh, to decide when to ease or modify measures. By national, uh, though you mean England, I mean, because Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland did go their own way on. Yes, that's that, that, that's right. I do mean England. So the, the, the lockdown that the UK government is responsible for, which is yes. England. So, uh, you know, so, so what I was arguing in that piece um, is that if the government wants local lockdowns to be perceived as fair, if it wants them... Uh, if it wants to be able to work effectively with local authorities to uh, whack these moles, um, then it needs to set out some of those criteria, make sure the approach is consistent, predictable for people uh, and, and feels fair. Because frankly, a whack-a-mole strategy isn't really any good uh, if nobody knows who's doing the whacking or what they're supposed to be whacking them with. And, and um, I'm trying to pursue this metaphor and how, how big the mole is, I guess, um, because Lester was saying, look, we didn't have all the uh, data. Then there was a lot of uh, argument about that. Um, what do you think the government needs to needs to do about if it's going to um, have any kind of buy in and sense of legitimacy about telling whole areas or towns to, to shut down? Um, what does it need to provide? Well, in, indeed, I think there's been a transparency problem here. And I think that the transparency problem is is, is kind of twofold. 
One of the issues is precisely, as you say, with the kind of data that the government is publishing and also sharing with local authorities about tests. So there's this, this distinction between pillar one data, which is a test that you get from hospitals and, and other particular settings, and then pillar two data, which is tests that you get uh, processed in commercial labs, including samples taken at home. Um, and basically, there's, there's a lot more uh, detail published on pillar one than there is on pillar two. Uh, and that was fine when most uh, positive cases were coming out of Pillar 1, but these days a lot more positive cases are coming out of Pillar 2, uh, and so the government needs to be publishing that data and sharing it with local authorities so that people can kind of predict how close they're getting to local lockdown and work with central government if it's going to get buy-in. Uh, I think the other transparency issue is a slightly different one, um, which is that, amazingly, despite the fact that uh, you know, non-essential retailers in Leicester were asked to close from earlier in the week. Schools have been asked to close from today. Uh, and the government has said that this is all going to be uh, sort of given its legal basis with a new statutory instrument. This statutory instrument is nowhere to be seen. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I would not want to be a police officer on the ground in Leicester City right now because I would really have no clue what it was I was supposed to be uh, doing and indeed, if if I did start using a little bit of force in order to enforce what the government was saying about keeping businesses closed, keeping uh, schools closed, uh, then my force and I could potentially be liable for some uh, claims for trespass against the person. Because you know, as far as I can see, and for causing economic damage and so on. Because indeed. you say if the legislation isn't there, then the the police are entirely unclear about whether they're enforcing a guideline or uh, actually part of the law. It, it, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the health secretary promised that a statutory instrument would be brought forward uh, on Monday night, uh, but we still haven't seen it. And, you know, the lockdown is happening. So the government really needs to get its skates on with that. I mean, it, it's it's looking like maybe it's just going to bring in the relevant statutory instrument when it brings in the, 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 the new laws for the rest of England uh, over the weekend. But frankly, that's not really good enough, uh, given that the local lockdown in Leicester is happening now. And what powers do mayors have in this? Supposing uh, Andy Burnham in um, Manchester or Marvin Rees in Bristol said, look, uh, I want my city to shut down, um, contrary to what the government's saying, or the other way around. I don't want it to shut down. It's going to cause too much harm. But the UK government's telling us to do this. Uh, so, frankly, the, the powers of uh, mayors and local authorities are pretty limited. They're actually a little bit more limited than the government was suggesting earlier on in the week. The prime minister and the prime minister's spokesman was saying on Monday that local authorities have powers to close uh, premises if there are outbreaks. Actually, there's not very much that local authorities can do without making an application to the magistrate's court. So if they want to restrict people's movement or get businesses to close, uh, then they can go to the magistrate and say, here's our evidence that there's a problem here, here's the order that we want, and, and it's up to the judge. But it, without going to court, most of the levers are held in central government. So we could change that, right? So if the government actually wants local authorities to be more empowered to take action on the ground, uh, then it could pass new health protection regulations, uh, which give local authorities powers to uh, you know, close childcare uh, child or educational institutions, to close businesses, uh, to keep people at home. Um, but, but at the moment, I think this is part of the reason that some of the uh, local leaders in Leicester have been quite frustrated with government rhetoric. Uh, there's there's not much the local authority can do 
the levers are held in central government. And so it's all the more important that central government is communicating effectively, because ultimately that's where the power is. Raf, that's brilliant. What do the rest of you think? I mean, how much the government needs to have a local strategy and how much it uh, is actually going to find it very hard to tolerate one? I mean, it obviously does need to have one. And we've been talking about this since the 11th of May when the government um, announced their recovery strategy, their sort of broad plan for um, how it was going to come out of lockdown. And there they talked about, um, you know, local lockdowns in some form. They talked about the role of the Joint Biosecurity Centre in monitoring information at community level. So it ought to have been thinking about all of these issues. It is one of those things that's extraordinary that they hadn't worked out how the levers would work, um, how to communicate and so forth. But we've seen that on a number of fronts that that things then only when they emerge do the issues really come to the fore and we realise that there's a massive gap in it. So it's one of those things. I mean, getting getting local testing could be a big a big answer to part of the testing problem. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Getting, and we know. don't know what's been going on behind the scenes that has um, you know led to them not having this uh, sort of second tranche of information and why they haven't been sharing that with the um, local uh, governments until now. But on the legal stuff, I mean, yeah, it does seem rather surprising that no one had sat down and thought this all through. Um, in the two months that it has been since they um, started to go, you know, to first announce their lockdown easing strategy. Robert, what do you reckon? I, I think we ought to be a little bit generous to governments in some respect in that they're dealing with immensely complex and new problems and they're going to work their way through them as they happen. What trouble I think me most about the Leicester example is that, again, it didn't feel like they knew what the triggers were for going into lockdown. There wasn't a clear, you know, for a government supposedly very keen on metrics, it wasn't obvious to me at least what the metrics were here. What made them say when they knew since something like the 19th that this was a problem, what led them to take so long to act? And I think that's one of the questions that we have to look at in terms of the approach the government's taken. It's always been slow to, at every point in this crisis, there has been delay, a degree of complacency, and then some panic. So I think what we're gonna want to see after Leicester is a sense of, okay, what is the moment at which they go in? What is the moment at which they say, this is now a problem, we're introducing the local special measures for this town, this region, whatever it is. And we can understand why they didn't want to, because the whole narrative was about getting the country back to work. But there has to be some clarity in government. And I can't see any reason why it wouldn't be clarity that's made public that says, these are the three triggers that are going to put your region into special measures. And when it happens, we're going to act very fast because obviously, as we know from the way this pandemic has developed, you know, every day you lose is a problem in getting out of them again. Just, I mean, a tiny point on this, that, but quite an important time. Before we were talking about the national lockdown, this is one of the things we were debating is what happens when people have got warned at their area? What, what was going to happen if London went into lockdown? Would everyone flee London suddenly? I mean, we've, it's been one of these debates throughout is how will people behave? They've got a lot more information now about that. So presumably they... Um, have some evidence to be able to examine that issue. But I can, I am, you know, likewise sympathetic to the idea that how you handle the communication around this is a bit more complicated than just tell everyone, um, you know, miles in advance that they're about to be locked down. Do you think we, we, we can overstate this point? Though? I mean, the fear of everyone driving off to their second homes might, might be relevant if the lockdown's suddenly introduced in barns. But I think in most places, you know, most people don't have that option. They'll have to muddle through and live where they are. 
And some of the questions about Leicester were whether, uh, for example, textile uh, companies, um, which might have been continuing to run through the lockdown, were had workers very close together, and you've got multi-generational households living living together. Then other local leaders said, no, 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 it's not, it's not that at all. But you could see why you would want to dig into the particular local factors to try to address what it was in that area. Jim, I was, I was longing to ask you, what, what about local local furlough schemes, for example? Can you see the government ever going in that way? We, the government has not talked yet about having regional differentiation in the furlough scheme. In some sense, that could be an effective policy uh, for the government if firms face great uncertainty about whether their area is going to face a local lockdown. For the government to say in advance, if that happens to you, we will step in with extra support would actually provide quite a important degree of additional certainty for businesses in future. Um, that would only really be a feasible policy if if you can assume that there aren't things that businesses could do um, to kind of uh, game that system. So as long as the the kind of the decisions and the reason that you would end up in lockdown are kind of out of businesses' control, then that is the sort of policy the government could think about. Gemma, thanks for that. Raf, quick last thought. Uh, I, I basically just think in, in the coming week, what we need from the government is a roadmap. We had a national roadmap the last time there was uncertainty about what was coming next. This time we need a local roadmap to give local authorities, local communities a little bit of uh, certainty and predictability about what's coming next. Not totally sure we're going to get that this week because, of course, what we're going to get in the coming week is the Chancellor's thoughts on all this. But maybe that will be included within it. With that, we come to the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Gemma Tetlow, Raphael Hogarth, and particularly to Robert Shrimsley of the Financial Times. Thank you for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you all for listening at home. If you want to hear more of our work and discussions, and please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. Dropping into your feeds over the weekend will be my interview with David Lammy, the Shadow Justice Secretary, who joined me for a wide-ranging discussion, including on the government's response to the Black Lives Matter campaign. Don't miss that. You can listen at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and do leave us a review. You can find all of our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So do celebrate July the 4th Independence Day, that's the UK's coronavirus-tinted version, by avoiding the queues at the reopened pub or the crowds on the beach, and kick back with some of our great podcasts or reports. If you're in Leicester and you can't go anywhere anyway, then I'm sure we will make the time fly by. Have a good weekend, everyone.